Hola. You are listening to the Life in Paradise podcast, but today's episode doesn't have much to do with a life in paradise. It's another episode that I touched on some political viewpoints, current events, and random ramblings. So if you don't want to hear that, press stop. Actually, don't press stop. Just listen. Even if you don't want to hear it, just listen. And then you can take all of the knowledge and then go to work and all your friends and present to them like it's yours. And we don't have to tell anyone. It can be our secret. Listen up, people. Enjoy. I literally thought my head was going to explode. No, you didn't. You did not literally think your head was going to explode. How do we get to a point where literally does literally not mean literally? Literally. How do we get there? Because people say that all the time, and there's no possibility of their head exploding. And your toe isn't going to literally fall off when you stub it. Literally, it's not going to fall off. How did we get here? Do regulations really keep people safe? If you regulate an industry and you put rules on things that have to be in place for that industry to exist, does it really keep people safe? Do people wear their seatbelt because it's the law? Or do they wear their seatbelt because they're smart and they know that they have a higher probability of living if they get in a crash? I would suspect that most people wear their seatbelt because they want to live if they get in a wreck. Now, some people probably wear their seatbelt because it's the law. They don't want to get caught. And I know plenty of people who don't wear their seatbelt, and the law doesn't stop them from not wearing their seatbelt. It's just like a helmet on a motorcycle. The law doesn't require you to wear one, and it shouldn't, in my opinion. But when you look around, you still see plenty of people wearing helmets. And regulation has nothing to do with that. Regulation just makes things invisible. When things do go wrong, they seem to get overlooked. And an example of that would be the extremely strict gun regulation that's in Chicago. Now, I haven't done any research or figured out how hard it is to get a gun, but from what I hear, Chicago has some of the most strict gun laws of anywhere in the country. But every weekend, 15 to 20 people get shot and killed by them. So regulation is not working there. The thing is that there's no way to know There's no way to know whether or not, statistically, the gun regulation is working. In my opinion, it's not. Because the amount of murders that are taking place in Chicago are unacceptable. And if you made the gun laws more strict, I don't think you'd see a decrease in homicides at all. None. 
and we don't even talk about them. We don't talk about all these kids that are getting shot every single weekend in Chicago. There's no Jesse Jackson. There's no Al Sharpton. There's no Black Lives Matter rallies. And I'm not going to flip the coin over and say, but when a white person kills a black guy, everyone goes nuts. I'm not even going to worry about that. Let's just pretend like it's the same thing on the other side of the coin. But why is it unacceptable that these people who run around and scream that Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, aren't doing a thing when these kids are shooting each other in the inner city all across the country? A gorilla gets shot at a zoo and everyone flips out about it. A kid gets shot in Chicago and you don't even read about it online. You don't even see it on Facebook. That's because it happens so much. We're just numb to it. And for someone to think that they can come in and take the tool away from a culture who's programmed to shoot people when they have a disagreement, and this culture is programmed to rob and lie and cheat and steal and shoot people in the face. And we think that if we take away their hammer, they're not going to figure out how to drive a nail. That seems absolutely preposterous. To me. It seems to me like we have to change the people, not take away their tools. Even if you throw out the Second Amendment and all that stuff, you have to get to the root of the problem. And in my opinion, the root of the problem is that their culture has gotten off whack. They think it's okay to have fatherless homes. I read a study the other day that compared crime statistics across different neighborhoods and different demographic regions. What I found was interesting is it all came down to the likelihood of the person ending up in prison is directly related to whether or not it's a two-parent household. And yes, people can raise kids by themselves. My mom did it. I think she did a pretty dang good job. But for the most part, but the statistics show that if you have a one-parent household, you're more likely to be in prison. And they even, they even compared things black, white, Hispanic, all that stuff, income level, everything was taken into consideration. And the big determining factor was how many parents are in the household. Because if you've got a one-parent household, you've got one parent who's out working, I would hope, trying to support the household, and they don't have time to parent their kids. They don't have time to spend time with them, teach them right from wrong. So no one teaches them. So they learn from the police. They go out, they make a decision, and they learn that it's bad because they get in trouble by the cops. And it's no different than the little four-year-old boy who reaches on the coffee table to grab something he's not supposed to grab, and he looks to see if no one's looking because he doesn't want to get in trouble. But when you're absent of that at the home, it's going to take place. Like People will teach themselves through making decisions and then dealing with the outcome of those decisions. No different than a dog who digs in the trash can. You catch a dog digging in the trash can and you reprimand it correctly. You may or may not see it ever dig in the trash again. It depends on the dog. But nonetheless, the dog made the decision to do something and then it learns based on the outcome of that decision. People are the same way. It seems foolish to think that we can take guns away and they'll just stop killing each other. Speaking of Al Sharpton, how does he make money? How does Al Sharpton profit? Well, I can tell you how. He has a non-profit organization in which he is the chairman of. He has a set salary for himself. He approaches families of white-on-black crime victims and he tells them that he will blow up their story 
and he will add media attention, which will give them the opportunity to write books and go on talk shows and get paid for various things. So he brings them into the light. But in exchange, you have to donate X amount of dollars to his charity. Maybe you don't have to, but it's implied. And I would imagine that there's some sort of vague contract. And that right there, that method of doing business, that business model should send you up in arms. Whether you're white, black, brown, it doesn't matter. Because what he won't do is he won't approach the families of the black-on-black crime. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're a third-rate thug, been arrested 20 times. If they get killed by a white man, he is knocking on their front door. And that's not, like, he's not seeking justice. He's not seeking equality. He's seeking money. And the fact that everyone just sits back and watches him, and he's turned into a leader. In fact, if I were black, I would consider doing the same thing. Well, no, no, I wouldn't. But I could easily do it if I wanted to. But those are the kind of things that no one thinks about. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't work for a company. He has a nonprofit organization that gets paid when there's a white-on-black crime. How did we get here? One thing I've been thinking about with all the hype about mandating the minimum wage, and it blows my mind that people still get caught up on the minimum wage. It's simple laws of economics that, that do not change. You cannot force them. You can't force the price of a good or service into a marketplace and expect it to have a real impact. So without getting into all the economic technicalities of minimum wage, just think about it on a simple basis to where you used to, you could pay people $7 an hour. Now you might have to pay them 15 That's over double. So what will companies do? What will they do to, to make up for that cost? They're not going to eat that extra $8 an hour. They're going to pass it on to the consumer. Another thing they're going to do is they're going to cut employment. So they can either pass the money on to the consumer or they can reduce the number of employees for the same amount of money. And that would probably incorporate technology. And what will that do to the unemployment rate? It will go up. And what do people do when they're unemployed? They go take handouts. They go get entitlements. They go get free things. It seems to me like it's such an obvious equation, but for some reason people don't get it. If I owned a retail store and someone told me that my wages were about to double, I would figure out how to get an automated system as fast as I possibly could. A business is a business and a charity is a charity. You can't expect a business owner to pay a certain wage out of the kindness of their heart. If they want to do that, that's great. But expecting them to pay some arbitrary number because they are a business seems ridiculous. So the business is going to run out there. They're going to buy an automated kiosk and they're going to take the employee out of the picture. The only reason they haven't done it before is because it's been cheaper to have employees there at the front line. Once the price gets cheaper to have automation there, that's what you're going to see. And somebody please write down what I'm about to say. I think in the not too far future, you're going to have a mandate, like an affirmative action that says you have to have X amount of living, breathing, sleeping employees. You, somehow they're going to measure your labor force and they're going to have a maximum amount of automation that you're going to have. They're going to set a maximum amount of automation that any business will be able to have. I don't know how they're going to measure it. I don't know how they're going to do it, but it's coming. I guarantee you. And for people who can't see that or see how that would happen, I encourage you to just think about it. I was thinking about the growing 
disparity between, I don't want to say races, but between a general demographic of black people and a general demographic of white people. And also that same thing that applies to like thugs and cops. Like they've always hated each other. And, and over time, it's hard to know whether the thugs have gotten more thuggish so the cops have to get more coppish or the cops get more coppish and the thugs get more thuggish. I don't know. But to, to me, you look out at a group of cops all decked out like a military special forces. They just look like a bunch of wannabe goobers. I mean, you're not military. You're cops. Special ops guys. And I think it's like an ego thing. Regardless, you see this growing gap between cops and bad guys. And now it's gotten to the point where the bad guys presume that they're guilty until proven innocent. And the cops are getting accused for using excessive force. As crazy as it sounds, I think that if cops would make a willing effort, and I know one party's got to always step forward, right? If you get in an argument with someone, someone's always got to be the first one to approach the situation and try to mend things. Because if you, if both parties agree not to take any steps forward, nothing will ever happen, nothing will change. And that's where we are right now. And if cops would be willing to go out in the hood and hang out with these guys and talk to them and make a movement and extend an olive branch, and I know that seems so far-fetched because... It's a totally different culture. It's different people. They speak differently. They have different morals. They have different values. I know that they're very far apart, but somebody has got to take the first step. And if cops could build relationships with people that are in the hood and show them that they're not out to get them, and the thugs would have to be reciprocating with this, and who knows? Maybe that could get somewhere. Maybe that could, maybe that could change things, but it's got to start somewhere because it's just going to get worse. Now, I'm not talking about on the street, like during patrol hours, and you pull over a guy, and he's drunk, and he's got a gun in his lap. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about maybe an hour or two hours out of the day where a couple of cops go to a restaurant, and they seek out some people. They profile them. I know that sounds bad, but they look at them and make a judgment, and they say, you know what? I wonder if these people are the type of people that would be angry towards us. I wonder if these two people sitting right here are the kind that say F the police and they'll know because they deal with those types of people all day, every day they can profile them. They can pick them out. And if they're willing to go approach those guys and sit down and have coffee with them and talk to them and talk about other things and not just only interact with these people during a time of extremely high emotions and opposing contention. And the setting has a lot to do with it. If you get in a fight with a guy at a bar and two weeks later, and, and nothing's resolved. You're still mad at each other. You got broken up. You still wanted to get him. He still wanted to get you. And you saw each other at a bar. You'd probably end up swinging. But if you ran into each other at church or at an elementary school play, chances are you're not going to end up swinging. You'll resolve things. And if I were a cop, I would take the time to go out and show these people that I'm not a SWAT team member or I'm not a specialist or a special ops guy. And, and part of the, the, the egos of these cops have just gotten to be ridiculous. And, of course, they're compensating for their lack of confidence and ability. But that set aside, I think both parties are equally guilty. I think the thugs are guilty for being thugs, and I think the cops are guilty for being cops. But to bring those two together is going to take an act of love. I know that sounds all hippy-dippy-ish, but you've got to care about people. And until they do something 
to set you off personally, then you can still care about them. You don't have to hate them. And I'm guilty. Like, I'm guilty of the same thing, making assumptions on people. But I like to say that I really don't judge someone until I hear them talk, and I'll talk to anyone to give them a fair shake. But I think there's a lot of people out there that don't do that. So to sum things up, I'm going to leave it with this. Once a division has occurred, one party or the other has to swallow their pride in order to mend a relationship and walk down the path of resolution. Why does the government employ rude people? Now, I don't mean that across the board, but we all know that when you walk into a government agency, you're probably going to deal with someone who's rude. And everyone says that, oh, there's no competition, they're not incentivized, and I think that is all correct. The main thing is that they're not incentivized because nothing is performance-based or monitored or bonused. You're not expected to hit quotas. Well, maybe you are expected to hit quotas, but if you don't hit them, it doesn't affect your paycheck. It doesn't affect your boss's paycheck. It doesn't affect your boss's boss's paycheck. So there's no pressure. Now, some might think that's a good thing, and it might be good for that one particular person that one employee who all he has to do is show up to work do his little job he can be as rude as he wants to people and go home but it doesn't benefit the people that that guy is interacting with so if that guy interacts with 10 people per day and he's rude to all of them he's just crapped on 10 people's day he just crapped on 10 days for 10 different people why can't they be incentivized why can't we have a bonus structure in place Why can't we have a rating system? Why can't we log into a website or an app and rate the employee of the government agency that we just dealt with? And we tell these employees, hey, if you don't have this rating, you're out of here. We want our people to be happy. If you're not willing to show up and be happy, this is not the right job for you. Go work at a machine shop or somewhere where personality does not matter. I don't think that lack of personality in these government jobs lead to higher productivity. You can have both. You can have someone with a great personality and is highly productive. We just can't figure out how to do it for the U.S. government. I often wonder what would happen if somebody walked in there and said, you know what, we're restructuring this entire entity. XYZ County of Texas, we're starting over. You're interviewing for your jobs that you already have. If you don't make it, you're fired. That's how business works. But the government has grown into this monstrosity of laziness and waste because it's not coming out of anyone's pocket. Budgets don't matter. Pro formas don't matter. The only thing that matters is that someone produces good numbers so that someone else can get re-elected. And they don't want to get re-elected. Well, I shouldn't say that they don't. Most people don't want to get re-elected so they can help the country or help the community. They want to get reelected to further their political career. I know that's generalizing, but I would suspect that a vast majority of politicians are more into it for their own career than they are for helping the country. If I were in charge, I believe one of the first things I would cut would be the U.S. Postal Service, who, let's not forget, operated at a $5 billion loss in 2014. Now, I'm not saying you go in tomorrow and you just ax the entire Postal Service, but you do it slowly. That's 617,000 employees just for the Postal Service. 
Now, a lot of people might say, what about the jobs? You're going to lose all those jobs. Unemployment numbers are going to go up. Unemployment numbers are going to go up. You can't just go cut that many jobs. Well, you can. You figure out how slow you can do it, and there's people that can pay good money that tell you just how slow or fast you can do it. And all those deliveries that the U.S. Postal Service is making will still need to be delivered. They'll just be delivered by a private company. So a lot of those jobs can transfer from the government sector to the private sector. The employees will probably make more money. They might have a little bit more stress. They might not have the lifetime pension that they would if they retired from the U.S. Postal Service. But we would get our packages cheaper. We would get them faster. And we would have an extra $5 billion plus 617,000 people's worth of salary. And think about all the real estate we could sell off. Think about all the old mail trucks that we could sell to these deer hunters that need deer hunting mail trucks. So that's just the U.S. Postal Service. We don't need it. Between the internet and DHL and FedEx and UPS, and who knows, maybe some smaller little local carriers would pop up. Maybe some little guy would start a little delivery service for just envelopes. And we could put that $5 billion plus 617,000 salaries towards the national debt and cut it by a quarter with one decision. There might be some repercussions, but I think overall work out in our favor. When was the last time you voted for a judge or tax collector or all these small little community type positions that people pay no attention to? And when was the last time, even if you can remember the last time that you voted for a judge or a sheriff or a city councilman, when was the last time you did research to figure out who you wanted to vote for? Or did you just vote for the Republican or the Democrat? If you have voted and you did research in a very small election, please email me, nikasaleandsurf at gmail.com. I'd like to hear it. But they don't want you to. People don't want you voting based on your research and decisions, which is based on their past or their history. A county judge would rather you see his name, recognize him, see that he has a cowboy hat on, looks like a good old boy, and so you vote for him. They don't want transparency. And with the technology that we have today, there's absolutely no reason why I shouldn't be able to pull up and read a little bio about anyone that I plan on voting for. Right now, it's difficult to do research. You got to figure out where to go. You got to figure out what to type in in the www and what to put in the Google. And that's the way that people want it. Let me rephrase that. If I were running for a position and I had some dirty laundry out there, I would want it to be kind of tough for people to find it. I'd want it to be difficult. But if we had a system in place that forced transparency and accountability by providing information to the consumer's palm with little effort, I think we would see some changes in the way people are voted in. Oh, man, I was just looking through my notes here. Got a good one that almost overlooked. The TSA spends $7 billion a year right now let's just back up a little bit the tsa used to be non-existent planes didn't blow up very often i don't think we've gotten our money's worth either way they spend seven billion dollars a year and they want fifty-six thousand more employees and why so that they can give us better service they feel like that they cannot provide adequate service with their resources 
1.7 million people fly per day. Statistically, 0% of those crash. I mean, it's like 0.003 or something like that. And we're spending $7 billion a year to make sure people don't take cigar cutters on planes. Now, some might say, well, for that $7 billion a year, we're getting that 0.003%. I don't think so. And here's how I know. Recently, Homeland Security did an audit on TSA. They didn't tell them what they were going to do. They didn't announce it. It wasn't public. It was totally secret. And so they took prohibited items through security checkpoints to see what they could get through and what they couldn't. And the results are astounding. Now, I'm not talking about like fingernail clippers or four ounces of fluid not in a Ziploc bag. I'm talking about things that could overtake people in order to control an airplane. Which, anyway, now you can't even do that because the doors to the cockpit's locked. So, regardless, 95% of the hidden naughty items made it through. So that means they only caught 5% of the planted items. They should have to post that on a sign in front of the surrender checkpoints. Could you imagine if you owned a business and you were expected to complete a task and you only did it 5% of the time? I don't think you'd be in business very long. Imagine if a heart surgeon had a 5% success rate. Or if you went to get your car fixed and they told you, well, there's a 5% chance that this fix will work. You wouldn't do it. The value's not there. So we're spending $7 billion a year so that some Burger King employees with badges can stand around and bark orders at us to get 5% of their prohibited items. What a joke. Just think about how many times you've accidentally taken something through TSA and you get to your destination and you go, oh shoot, I did not know I had that there. Well, let me just tell you a little story. A little over a year ago, I went to Southeast Asia, visit my cousin, her husband, and just to check things out. And I have a knife that I used to carry around with me. I, I don't anymore because I don't know where it is, but I used to carry it around if I was going to, back then I was traveling to and from Nicaragua a lot. And if I was going to be walking around somewhere shady, it, it was like a switchblade knife made for like self-defense. So I'd carry it in my pocket and I'd forget about it. And it just would go on my nightstand and go back in my pocket. It wouldn't be a big deal. Well, I got to Asia. First, they stopped me when I was coming through the checkpoint and they, they had a deer rifle bullet that was in my backpack. Whatever. They took it out. They said, you can't have this. I said, okay, that's fine. So they searched my backpack once. I get to Asia. I do some traveling around there. I fly to Cambodia and I'm going through my, my shaving kit and I see that knife in there and I'd carry that thing on everywhere. It's in a bit of my backpack. I carried on my backpack everywhere I went. So I carried that switchblade knife on seven flights, five of which were international and no one ever caught it. I caught it before they did. So luckily I met a guy in Cambodia he was flying back to Pennsylvania and he could mail it to me because he was going to check his bag and I just carried on mine the entire way. So that's just a perfect example. Now, granted, only two of those flights were in the U.S. So that's the TSA. The other five that I took it on were foreign, uh, foreign security. But most airports, if they allow U.S.-based companies to fly in and out, well, let me back up a little bit. The U.S. mandates that they meet their security standards if they fly in and out of that country. 
So the security is not that different than the TSA. You don't have the Yahoo's working there screaming orders at you, which is kind of nice. But for the most part, the standards are the same. Seven flights, five international, a switchblade that's made to cut bad guys' throats. Take that, TSA. And someone please explain to me why the TSA or, or why that we feel the need that a government agency has to protect an industry. There's no other industries out there that I can think of that relies on the government to protect its consumers. All the major sporting events, all the banks that people go to, all the subways, they're all in charge of their own security. But for some reason, we're just okay with letting the inefficient government manage the security on airplanes. Why? Just because they're in the air? Why don't we leave it up to the airlines? Leave it up to the companies? They will probably subcontract it to a private corporation and everything would be better. But nope, we're turning into a police state where we need the government to protect us. No one's, no one's willing to protect themselves anymore or take it on. They want to just be protected. How did we get here? One last thing I want to touch on. Then we're going to wrap this up. I read recently that a gorilla was shot at a zoo because a little boy fell in there and they didn't want the gorilla to kill the little boy. For some reason, there's a lot of people that are making a big stink about it and saying that the gorilla should not have been shot. And to me, that is completely asinine. My thoughts are this. Number one, you don't put gorillas in cages. If you do, you don't allow children to fall into the cage. If you disobey rule number one and rule number two, now you have to deal with a child in a cage with a wild animal who probably does not want to be in the cage. So what do you do? You have to kill the gorilla. It's the only thing you can do. And then what if that was your kid? What if it was your little toddler in there? You'd blast a gorilla to smithereens. It's not pretty. No one wants to see it. No one wants to kill primates, especially me. I'd rather not see them in zoos. I'd rather not see zoos than have to deal with the possibility of shooting one every 20 years. And stuff like that's going to happen. If you're going to take animals, put them on display, let children around there, you're going to have accidents. And to think that you're not is stupid. So all you people that paid money to go to the zoo and you pay money to go look at these animals, you're just perpetuating the possibility of animals getting shot to protect the viewers. And this is another one of those, are we really talking about that? Items, in my opinion. I think it'd be more valuable to invest our time and energy into problems that mattered. I mean, I'm sorry, but killing one gorilla in the zoo is nothing compared to the issues that our country is dealing with. It's just like the stupid lion that got shot. I don't want to see lions get shot. I don't like shooting lions. I have no desire to shoot lions. But I understand it. I'm going to touch on that topic on my next episode. But for now, I'm going to wrap it up because you're probably getting bored. So thanks again for listening to the podcast. I'm well aware that this podcast has nothing to do with life in paradise. And that's okay because I'm going to start a second podcast. I just haven't done it yet. So the first one I put out about politics and this one will be the first two on my new podcast. But until then, I'm going to keep posting them under this thread. And as you're listening to this, I'm in Mexico drinking Coronas, probably on a beach, just kicking it. Thanks again for listening, and I would love some help coming up with a name for this new podcast. 
I don't know how often it'll be or how frequent I'll get to them, but I feel like there's a lot of stuff that I should talk about. I don't know why. Maybe because I'm a loner (laughs) and I'm a hermit and I don't get out that much. And so I have all these thoughts and I have no outlet. And if I don't get them out there, my head's just going to explode. So send me some suggestions for the name of the new podcast. Send me some feedback. Thanks again for listening. Insert name here. Insert tagline here. Adios. And the border meant freedom, a new life, romance. That's why I thought I should go. And start my life over on the seashores of old Mexico. My first night in Juarez, I lost all the money I had. One bad senorita made use of one innocent lad But I must keep on running, it's too late to turn back I'm walking into sun, I'm told Yeah, and things will blow over on the seashores of old Mexico Two Mexican farmers en route to a town I can't say.